Well, Charlton, I promise to you, I was pretty cute when I was young, too. <laughs> If you ask me, well, Jin, what went wrong then? <laughs> then I don't know what to tell you after that. <laughs> Congratulations, all you graduates. We are so thankful for your presence and hard work before the Lord. We are grateful for each one of you. We are continuing our sermon series today in Charlton's DNA. We have been studying this for the past three Sundays. For the first couple of Sundays, we focused on upward, why it matters to worship our triune God. Anything else that we'll worship will leave us more thirsty. Yet God is the only one who will satisfy us when we meet him. He will forgive us when we fail him. And last Sunday, we focused on inward, the characteristics of the gospel-transformed community This early church devoted themselves to the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And they devoted themselves to one another in fellowship. Through frequent gathering and much caring for one another. They were eager to gather together and they deeply cared for one another. And that showed manifestation, showed as a commitment to unity and peacemaking in this very eclectic and very diverse group of people found favor with all the people. And may we, Charlton as a church, will continually be like that, we pray. Now, that brings us to today, as we focus on outward, how we share this glorious news of Jesus to the world as we dive into today's passage. What is our calling as a church? Our calling is to be a witness of Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life. That's who we are. That's how God made us to be the witness of who he is. And we will examine that through the parable of the Good Samaritan today. When you hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, you say, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, do like Samaritan. That's what this is all about, right? Well, yes, pretty much. Yet, it, It is actually so much more than just to do like Samaritan. It actually requires your heart to change. This parable of the Samaritan shows us that our need for the heart change. And I pray that as we dive in, we will abandon our self-absorbedness. I confess, church, myself, and I'm assuming you are too often, we are so busy worrying about ourselves, my agenda, what I must take care of, my worries, my anxiousness. But I pray that we will, as individuals, often we are so inwardly focused. May we look outward and fulfill our calling to be the witness of the gospel as we dive in his word today. Open up your word to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, we will read from verse 25 all the way through 37. Luke 25, 37. Luke 10, 25, excuse me, all the way through 37. And to give you a little text context about this, here is the expert of the law comes to Jesus and asks a question. But Jesus thinks through the motive of this question instead of simply answering the question of this law expert. Jesus gives this parable called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let me read it for us. Luke chapter 10, 25, all the way down to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after them, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is God's word. So today, through this parable of Good Samaritan, let us examine what is our calling as a, both as an individual and also as a church. How to be a faithful witness of the gospel. Very simple outline, actually. What not to do, what to do, how to change. As simple as that. Sometimes I give you a very complex outline, but this is pretty simple. Um, but as far as what not to do, give you a little bit overview. Yes, this is about... Jesus says, go do likewise. But this is so much more than just moral conformity or behavior modification. Behavior modification and moral conformity without heart change can only go so far. That's not what we ought to do. And what to do, we will examine how we can move from moralism to actually be a true witness of Jesus, true witness of the gospel message. And how to change, how to, how to bridge that chasm. How does the heart transformation happen? We will examine that from this passage first. So what not to do. Here it says, it begins by a law expert stood to test Jesus. When we hear the law expert, what do we think? We perhaps think of the lawyer. The civil law, perhaps who major in it. Or perhaps who is really litigation lawyer. So think like lawyer. But in this case, law experts more like a professor of religion, expert in the law, comes to question Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what can I do to get saved? Tell me. And Jesus said, well, you're the expert in the law. You tell me. What should you do? And this expert of the religion, the professor of religion, responded by saying, well, love God with all my heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, there you have it. Go do it. But what does he say? But he wanted to justify himself. He wanted to qualify himself. But who really is my neighbor here? 
Now, what this law expert, religion, professor of religion trying to do to Jesus is this. He's trying to whittle down Jesus' commandment to fit in his own box. This Jewish law expert, in his mind, the who is worthy to be my neighbor, who qualifies to be my neighbor, he's adding qualification in order to justify his liking. He cannot possibly stand to like somebody. Oh, I don't really want to associate myself with someone perhaps who's different than me. So you think if first century, this Jewish culture may be very homogeneous culture? Oh, absolutely not. This was a very diverse cultural society at the time as well. In fact, the Galilee was known as the Galilee of Gentiles. They're a very eclectic, diverse group of people, but he wanted to justify to his lacking only. Who is worthy to be my neighbor, Jesus? See, what's the problem we face here? We often face that too. Often while Jesus has called us to love our neighbor, regardless, we are trying to measure of who's worthy to be our love. When we are young, perhaps some of us wanted to be among the cool kids. Ooh, I want to get in the cool kids club. When we grow up, now we measure who's worthy to be our neighbor by their social status. It's amazing to me each time when we find out their vocation, if certain vocation is a very successful, respectable job, how the room dynamic changes. All of a sudden, these room dynamics shift a little bit. We want to associate ourselves with someone who are important, someone who are respectable, someone who are recognized. So we are very busy always trying to be justify ourselves who our true neighbor is. What is the first main problem we see in this law expert? There is a huge chasm between his confessional belief and operational belief. He knows in his confession, in his mind, he shall love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love his neighbor. But operationally, he's trying to busy, trying to measure who can be worthy of my neighbor. Who should I associate myself to? Who should I justify what I'm thinking about? Now, Jesus sees through his motive. So instead of just answering the question, what does Jesus do? He gives this parable that is actually quite gut-wrenching to this professor of religion. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down to this road. Why would Jesus say that? He does not even identify who this man is. He just said there is a man going down to this road. And this man was robbed by robbers, got beaten down, left half dead. There's a priest and the Levite comes by. They just pass by without doing anything. A few things about this text here. It says a man was going down to the road in verse 30. But actually, if you think about the geography, if you are interested in that, Jerusalem actually is south of Jericho. Then why is it says the man was going down when he's going actually from south to north? Jerusalem is actually located about 3,000 feet above the sea level. It's pretty high and above. But Jericho, even if it's located in the north, it is located 1,000 feet below the sea level. So actually it's a huge descent as you go from Jerusalem to Jericho because it's such a rough road. This path was actually known as the path of blood. There was a desert. There was lots of caves. There was lots of crevices. Rob, perfect place for robbers to hide. And robbers hid and just attacked this man, stripped everything off he needed in this place. Now, by the way, 
how low this Jericho. Jericho is about 20 minutes from the Dead Sea. And when you go to Dead Sea, that's the lowest place on ground level on earth. There's McDonald's if you go to Dead Sea. In the McDonald's, it says the lowest McDonald's on earth. And you might wonder, how does McDonald's relate to this passage? And I say, it doesn't. <laughs> Just wanted to a little free before that. It literally says the lowest McDonald's on earth. That's one thing I remember about Dead Sea. But can you imagine how huge descent from the Jerusalem to Jericho on that road he goes. But then who comes first and foremost here? First person who comes to this plot is a priest. Now what does priest do? Verse 31, he sees it, but he just goes by side. He doesn't really help this half dead man. He just moves away. Why would he do that? For a couple of reasons. Number one, well, if the man is half dead, he's been recently attacked and priest does not want to risk his life. He's like, oh, let me get out of the way till he goes away. Second potential reason is that it might risk his job. What's job of a priest to offer up sacrifice before God? And in, according to the written law, if the priest gets near the dead body and touches it, you are defiled. So priest doesn't want to touch that. But oral law, that's the written law, actual oral tradition goes one step further. You don't even touch it. You get defiled not only by touching it, but also by being near of his shadow, about four cubit. Modern translation, six feet. Social distancing was a real thing back then. So this priest like goes away. Oh, if I get nearby him, I get defiled. I become ceremonially unclean. I cannot perform my job. I'm not going to do it. Just goes by. What's so sad about that is the priest's job one of his primary functions is to care for the poor, help the needy. But he's like, but, oh, not at my expense. It might cost too much of my job. Who knows? I might get killed by robbers. And the Levite comes. Levite does the same thing. Even the Levite is not dependent on this law. He does not pass by. He does not help the man, but he just passes by too. And when you read that, we often think there was a priest, there was a Levite, there was the Samaritan. No, it is most likely that priest and Levite traveled together. Watch the context here. It is most, this is such a path of blood. Priests would never travel that road usually. Why would he do that? Because it's necessary. It is most likely that the priest who lived in Jericho went to Jerusalem to offer up a sacrifice and now he's way back home. And who is Levite? Levites are often the assistants to priests. So priests often would never travel alone, but both of them coming together, offering up great worship in Jerusalem, going back to their hometown in Jericho. And then both of them see a priest like, oh, I'm not going to bother with that, runs away. Levi says, oh, I don't want to risk my life too. Both of them just fled. What do we learn from the church? See, first and foremost, if you just treat caring for your neighbor as your job, something you must do as a moral obligation, when the rubber meets the road, you will be the first one to bail out. See, it was priests and the Levite jobs to care for those who are needy and poor. And they, I'm sure they do it because what their job is. But when it actually truly matters, oh, I'm not going to risk my life. Oh, I'm not going to risk my job. I'm just going to go get away. See, how are we doing, church? So if, if, we, if I come across and just say, hey, just do this, then you will be great missionary. You will be great ambassador for Christ. Then you will fulfill your calling to be the witness of the gospel. 
the moral obligation will not carry you through as much as you would like to. Pulling yourself up by the bootstrap, when the rubber meets the road, you will be the first one to bail out of it. Uh, so, you, so you go home and you say, oh, wow, we learned about how to be a witness of the gospel. So I guess I must talk to my neighbor. Okay, I must do it to be a good Christian. If you do that way, in the end, you've, even you being a witness of the gospel, it's very self-serving because you're just trying to satisfy your guilt conscience. The self-serving, just trying to meet moral obligation can only take you so far and you will be the first one to out of it. Are Christians all like this? I think not, in fact. If you read this scholar named Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist and historian in his book, The Triumph of Christianity. In fact, one of the reasons why Christian Christianity spread so much in the Roman Empire first through fourth centuries that whenever plague happened, whenever major plague, smallpox break out and all that, all the pagans fled the city. But it was the Christians that moved into city to care for the sick and the needy in the difficult time and tension. Were the Christians treating this just as something moral obligation they must fulfill? I think not. They must have experienced heart transformation. So they are there to care for the sick and the needy. So first and foremost, we see that when the rubber meets the road, if you treat this Christianity to be a true witness of the gospel as just moral obligation, moral conformity, behavior modification, it will only carry you so far. What not to do is that. You see the chasm between this priest and Levite, confessional belief and operational belief. And second, then, how, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to move from the moralism to actually be a true witness of the gospel. Verse 3, 33 says, but a Samaritan. We just read that. Okay, there was a Samaritan. To the law expert who is hearing this parable for the first time, Jesus just dropped the bomb. Why is that a bomb? Well, if you're a law expert, you first heard of a priest who went to Jerusalem to offer up sacrifice. Now he's on his way back to Jericho. And then you heard about Levite, the priest assistant who is traveling back, who do you expect here third? This normal Jewish person who worshiped in Jerusalem returning back. But instead of making a fellow Jewish person a hero, who is Jesus inserting to this plot all of a sudden? A Samaritan. And Jews hated, hated, despised the Samaritan to their gut. And how much they hated According to the book of Sirah, which is a more like a Jewish ethical teaching book written by a Jewish rabbi, uh, written around 200 B.C., says this in the book of Sirah, chapter 50 and 26, chapter 50, verse 25 and 26, shows how much Jewish people despise the Samaritan. He says, there are two groups of people that I detest, and third, that does not even deserve to be called as a people. These men are... Edomites, the descendant of Esau, the inhabitants of Philistine cities, which are enemies of Israel. Who are the third? And the stupid Samaritans. That's how Jewish treated Samaritan. They hated Samaritan to their God. But instead of Jesus making this Jewish person, while the Levites and the priests, all the clergy members fled for the sake of their job and safety, oh yeah, my fellow Jewish people are the hero. But instead of that, Jesus inserts Samaritan, whom this law expert detests. And what does this Samaritan do? 
verse 34, he pours an oil. What does oil do? It softens and hardens the blood. And he pours wine. What does the wine do? It, it's an alcohol. It cleanses the wound. And then what does he do? He puts the man on his own donkey. That means now Samaritan has to walk because he put this half-dead man on his donkey. And then what does he do? Verse 34, he takes this man to the inn. Why does he take this half-dead man to inn at that time? If you're a Jewish man, they, people in the community would have opened up your home. Otherwise, it would be a great disgrace to the community that there was no place to stay. But because he was a Samaritan, he could only find the inn in the local town. But he finds the inn and puts the man in the inn. Not only that, verse 35, he goes extra mile by saying what? I'll give you all the money and I'll reimburse you. It cost him. What happened if this Samaritan man says, I really have done all I could do. So let me put him in the inn and I go without paying him. Then when the half-dead man is fully healed, he'll most likely be sold into slavery in order to reimburse all the cost. But this Samaritan goes out of the way to all the nurse duty to pour oil, pours wine, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to the inn and pays full price for it. Now, church, do you know how much it costs Samaritan? It costs his time, his money. It was great inconvenience. He risked his life, but he does it all regardless of this unidentified man, half-dead man. While the law expert is saying, who is worthy to be my neighbor? I want to make sure he's fellow Jew that I like. I like this person's social status. But Jesus intentionally leaves men unidentified, and Samaritan does not care. Help this unidentified man everything he can. Absolutely, God does everything in order for that man to live. And then Jesus now asks a question, who is the true neighbor to this man? Verse 36, which of the three do you think is the neighbor? Do you see how Jesus reversed the question? Verse 29, the law expert is basically saying, who is worthy to be my neighbor? Jesus is saying, what does it mean for you to be a neighbor? Rather than just you trying to busy measure who your neighbor ought to be, what Jesus is doing, what does it mean to be neighbor to whoever God calls you into your life? Jesus completely flips the question and says, go and do likewise. Church, can we be like this? Rather than us being so busy, I only want to associate myself with people I like. But can we go out of our ways to reach out to whoever neighbor that God has called us today? Let me speak both individually and also collectively as a body of Christ Individually speaking, do you know a church that there is a theology of proximity? Throughout the scripture, there are so many places, better, closer neighbor, close friends, it's so much better than far away from family. There is some reason why in God's sovereign plan, out of 7.5 billion people or tens or 100 billion people who have ever lived in the same time and same location that God has called you to the people that you come across, the neighbor very well be your literal neighbor next door. That neighbor very well mean your coworkers. Or that neighbor may well mean someone you see when you drop your kids off at soccer practice weekly basis. Who is your neighbor and will you love them regardless of who they are rather than busy trying to measure up whether they are worthy enough for you to be associated with? Today, I challenge all of us, go and love your neighbor. If your relationship with your neighbor is perhaps, hey, it's a nice weather type of weather, 
uh, if the, it's the nice weather type of relationship, take one notch up today. Ask them, hey, how's your family doing? If your relationship with your neighbor is that comfortable level, hey, how's your family doing? Perhaps take one step further. Hey, may I have you over for a dinner? Do that. Your neighbor might say, whoa, that escalated quickly. Well, that was awkward. But nonetheless, they'll be like, oh, wow, that person, okay. We are in that new relationship, new level. You never know what God will do through that, your simple gesture, as uncomfortable as that is. But this summer, take time to get to know your neighbor, whether it be your literal neighbor, your coworker, how to fulfill our calling to be a true witness. Would you exercise the self-forgetfulness? We are often so busy trying to measure up our ego, trying to measure up who's worthy to be my neighbor. But rather than that, Jesus is asking you, what does it mean for you to be the true neighbor, whoever God is calling you to? You know, I lived in Princeton for the past four years. I lived in this condo. It's a town. It's, each wall was all connected. And my next-door neighbor was from Mongolia. And for the sake of their privacy, I'll call them John and Jane. John and Jane from Mongolia. That's a very Mongolian name, right? John loved working on his car. And so did I. So we would work on a car together and out, always together. So I got to know John pretty well. And Jane loved my dog that I had. So she would dog sit for my dog, and we were, we were just great friends. And she, they had me over for Thanksgiving, so I got to spend Thanksgiving with them. I invited them to church many times. One day, Jane texted me, and Jane's like, Jane, I know you are a pastor. Can you help me with something? I'm like, great. Can I come and talk to you? Yeah, please show up. She comes to my home, and she just lays out about her marriage. They've been married for 25 years, and it's not doing well. And she's asking for help. Throughout that six months and one year, I talked to her, I talked to John, I talked together. And I would love to tell you, because I was just such a wonderful marriage counselor, their marriage is restored happily ever after. No. Even through all endeavor, actually, they are still separated. Uh, but through that process, I got to share the gospel of Jesus. I got to share why we do what we do, why we can love one another. And I got to invite them to church. It shows their, <laughs> one day I invite them to church and they come. They came. John and Jane both showed up. And after that, this was the first time for them ever to be at church. Jane looks to me after that and she doesn't know what sermon is all about. She tells him next day, Jane, that was a great speech. And I'm like, well, that was my valedictorian speech. No, it was my sermon that she listened to. Uh, but she just was, had no idea about who Jesus was, what the gospel was. But she really appreciated that, that I was keep inviting her to stuff. And she even volunteered for our VBS at the church. I pray that one day that she and John will come to know the Lord. But when the rubber met the road was when I was moving finally to Pennsylvania. Jane calls me. So I'm like, okay, Jane, I'm there. And she just talks to me. And she begins to cry. Uh, what's going on? And she said, Jane, nobody has ever done that to me in my life. The fact that you took time to hear about our marriage and struggles, the fact that you met with John, that means just so much to me. I miss you. I did not know. I mean, I honestly thought, why are you calling me? What? And I honestly forgot about it because it had been one year already by the time that I was moving. But you never know how, what you can do. Somebody might just sow. Somebody might reap one day. You might not be able to do everything. But would you reach out, fulfill your calling to be a true witness to your neighbor? whoever the Lord called you, that one simple gesture can go a long way. God has called you to wherever you are for his reason. 
Now, let me challenge all of us as a church how to fulfill our calling as a witness of the gospel. This summer, we have VVS coming up, Shelton. Before I even go there, let me give you the reason why I'm about to say what I say. Shelton, if Shelton ever disappears, I've said this individually many times, if our church ever disappears, but somehow only the attenders and the members of Shelton says, oh, man, I'm so sad that Shelton burned down. I'm so sad that Shelton's closed. If only attenders and the members say that, we've done something terribly wrong. Even in the people community should say, I've never attended Chelton. I'm not even a Christian, but I am so sad that Chelton's gone. They've done so many great deeds for us. They really cared for us. That's mark of church that we look outward and reaching out to community. And this year for our vacation Bible school, it used to be come and see, come and gather. Now this year we go and show the love of Jesus to our neighborhood. You might say, but Jin, I'm too old to volunteer for this. I'm too young. I don't know what to do. No, don't worry about it. Talk to Mary. She'll figure that out how you can plug in. Tomorrow at 7 p.m., there's a Zoom meeting for that. Will you consider what does love require of you to be the true witness of Jesus, to be that Samaritan who goes out of his way to reach out, care for the sick and the needy? Will you consider that prayerfully? What does the Lord have you? This is one of the greatest, biggest outreach we have annually. And we need all of us mobilize church together to reach our neighborhood that the Lord has called us. And we anticipate all the great things that he will do. Now, third, you might say, well, Jen, you told at the beginning that moral conformity, just doing something will not work. But you just told us a bunch of to-do lists. How do I do it if it's not just moral, com- moral conformity, if it's just not guilt trip? How do you change? Well, let me show you how to change. How does heart transformation happen in this passage? Who do you identify with in this text thus far? Some of you guys might feel like, okay, I'm the law expert, oh Lord. I only want to associate myself with someone I think is worthy, someone I like, someone I have similar hobbies. I don't want to associate myself with Gentiles. I don't want to associate myself with Samaritan. Or some of you guys might feel like priest or Levite. God, I'm a good Christian. It's my job to care for the sick and needy. It's my moral obligation. Oh, every time I go in airplane, I feel like I have to say something to a person who's sitting next to me so that I can be a good Christian. That can only carry you so far. They're out of guilt, heavy reading. It can carry only so far. But thirdly, some of you guys might feel like I'm the Samaritan. You have no idea how many good deeds I do to those poor, sick, and needy. You may well be. But may I show you? Then no, none of us are Samaritan. Do you know who we are? We are the half-dead men on that road. We were lost. We were broken. We are on the hell-bound road to death. But the ultimate good Samaritan came. For the good Samaritan, it only, he only risked his life. But for the ultimate good Samaritan, he gave his life on the cross to rescue us when we are on the race to death. When we are hopeless, when we are utterly lost, our ultimate good Samaritan came, not only risking his life, but he gave his life on the cross for us. Here the good Samaritan pays through his money for this person. But our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Jesus Christ, he paid for our sin through his life. We are that half dead man. And the ultimate good Samaritan, this is pointing to Jesus, what he has done for us.
Church, do you know that we are absolutely hopeless, lost, broken? Jesus came to heal us. Jesus came to restore us, rescue us from our hopelessness to the degree that we marinate ourselves to the glorious truths of crucified and resurrected Savior. We will be compelled to do the same. If we just twist our arm, okay, I must be like Samaritan. It can only carry you so far. It's heavy ridden. But to the degree that you realize, God, I am this half dead man. I was hopeless. Everyone passed by. But you took pity on me. And you rescued me. You died for me. You paid for my sin. When we realize that marinate, that we move with joy and gratitude, that's what you have done for us. So we do the same to the neighbors that God has called us. Children, what kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian am I? Am I just a moral conformity Christian, just behavior modification? Or do we move out courageously and act because we know what the ultimate good Samaritan has done for us? May all of us meditate and saturate ourselves to the beauty of what Jesus Christ has done and to the degree that we understand and saturate ourselves to what he has done, we can move out, look outward, and fulfill our calling to be the true witness of the gospel. Let's pray together. Oh God, we lift ourselves up to you. God, I often feel like the priest and the Levite. <laughs> As a clergy, it is my job to care. Yet often, oh Lord, I know that only can go so far. When the rubber meets the road, when it actually costs great inconvenience, I'm the first one to run away. But, oh Lord, I repent. I don't know where our hearts are at this morning. Perhaps some of us are like the law expert who is just constantly trying to measure up. Oh, Lord, would you confront us, cause us to repent? And would you make all of us realize that we were that half-dead man on the road? We are hopeless. Hey, oh, Lord, you came through to rescue us from our hopelessness, from our bondage, from our sickness. And because of what you have done, now we can hope. So help us to move out based on what you have done. Help us to know that we would have been dead without you. And help us to share the good news of Jesus to those who are around us, to those people whom you have called us in our neighborhood, in our work, in the people that you bring us to our lives. Help us to be the faithful witness of the good news of Jesus Christ. Obviously, we cannot do that on our own strengths, O oh Lord. So help us, move us, change our heart today. Oh, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. May we become a church. May Chelton's DNA be constantly looking outward, not just being self-absorbed, but look outward to be the witness of the gospel. Lord, we commit ourselves to you. May your glory shine in your precious name we pray. Amen.